Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Good morning, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire, and today we haven't just got Richard Heller, we've got a very interesting and super intelligent guest with us who's going to be with us pretty well all the programme. Indeed. I'm Richard Heller. Good day from me. And we want to hurry on to our very special guest. But first, a few quick items of news. First of all, the dramatic news that uh, organised cricket has actually resumed in Vanuatu, the Pacific Island Republic, which was formerly the New Hebrides. It was quarantined successfully. It's virus-free. And they managed to complete their women's T20 final with an audience. Cricket in Vanuatu was taking advantage of their temporary monopoly, was televised for the first time, and their final got a global audience of 500,000, which is more than the country's population. Meanwhile, in home news, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sumak, who claims to be a cricket lover, has made a terrible political error. He released a list of his ten favourite books recently, which did not include Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac, And I think his career now hangs by a gossamer thread. Another political story uh, has been an early success for Labour leader Keir Starmer in his defence of Regent's Park cricket in his London constituency. My friends, the Paddington Rabbits Cricket Club, report that the nets are in use there, but only by cricketers. But they've still got him on trial as regards protecting the cricket pitch. And if he misses out there there is a threat of independent rabbit candidates in Labour marginals if he should fail. Well, actually, I think saving those nets, they're wonderful nets, and you and I, Richard, have frequently bowled or batted against each other. In those nets on Saturday mornings, we go there by bus, we wander across the park, and actually it's a fantastic social facility. And so I I think well done for his first major success as Labour leader. Very much so. One other piece of news, it concerns our old friends, the MCC, which of course owns Lord's Cricket Ground. There's 18,000 members of the MCC, but they're going to have a kind of first class scheme whereby if you pay 80,000 quid, you can just buy life membership just like that. Now, this is very controversial, I think. It's sort of putting money before anything else. I think it's going to raise a lot of hackles and when we get to the right moment I'm going to ask our guest Nathan Lehman who we're absolutely thrilled to have on this show. Both of us have read his novel The Test. I really enjoyed it. I actually kept me up till two in the morning to finish it. I thought it was absolutely terrific. Same feeling as Peter. It's an absolute page turner. Uh, You're really involved with the characters. I finished it in the time of a T20 getch, but it's really worth the five days of a test match. Nathan, once again, thank you for coming to join us. A few weeks ago, we talked about your work as the performance analyst for the England team over the eight or nine years, I think it is. But now we're talking to you primarily as an author. Mm. And I think the test is a wonderful book. I've told my weekend team, the erratics, that they have to go and buy a copy themselves. And... (laughs) There'll be 
a test for them on the test at the end of the season. <laughs> a test test. <laughs> a test test. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's a great pleasure. And thank you for taking the time to read the book. I'm, I'm very glad that you enjoyed it. So, Nathan, there, there probably are a few people listening who haven't just are too foolish or <laughs> ill-informed to have read your wonderful novel. So perhaps you could uh, just, um, for their benefit, explain without giving away that nail-biting ending, explain mm. what it's all about. So if I sort of explain the genesis of, of the novel, that probably leads well into explaining what it's about. So it, it started, when I first started writing it four or five years ago, it started as a book about coaching. So before I was a, a cricket analyst, I was a coach and a maths teacher, and I coached cricket and rugby. And then I got the opportunity to go and work with the England cricket team, and I saw you know, elite players and elite coaches, and I worked with some fantastic guys who had a, a really original thoughts and and I wanted to to write a book about coaching my experiences and and what I'd seen up close with the likes of Andy Flower and Peter Moores and Trevor Bayliss and it never really got off the ground I mean there are still some passages in the book where I talk about the ideas about skill acquisition and how you coach and 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 the relationship between a coach and a player that have remained from that from that original book then I had the idea that this could be a novel and and what I wanted to do essentially was to try and put the reader in the England dressing room. So I've spent you know ten years now sitting in the in the England dressing room during Test matches, during Ashes series, during World Cups. And what you realise after a while is is that you're seeing the same things over and over again. It's the same characters, different players playing the same roles. It's different players having the same conversations, the same arguments, the same tensions. And so. I can't write a book about my time in the England dressing room because those aren't my stories to tell and that would be a, you know, a, a breach of confidence. But what I can do is write a novel about it. So the idea of the novel is to put you in the England dressing room and show you what it feels like and show you what it what it looks like and show you the things that you see and hear in there to put you in the batsman's helmet as you're walking out to bat at Lords. And so that was the first image that I started with when I started writing the book. And the book essentially follows... Um, follows the story of a sort of journeyman established England cricketer. He's played about 50 caps, been in and out of the side. He's in poor form, but he's possibly about to be dropped after the next match. And the next match is the final test of an Ashes series, which England are currently leading 2-1. And due to a lack of other suitable candidates and the fact that the regular captain is stricken down by illness, Mac, who's the sort of central figure in the book, has to step in as a stand-in captain. And so you arrive in the midst of this test match, which you follow the course of through the book, but you also you, you see flashbacks to Mac's earlier life, and you learn about where he's come from, the relationship with his family, relationship with his father, all of which are complex and, and problematic and are slowly sort of resolved as the book goes on and you you follow this story of the match basically from start to finish and you slowly learn more and more about Mac and some of the other characters in the team and hopefully you then you learn to care about them as people and therefore that invests the match itself that you're following with tension and excitement and you start to care about the result so that was the that was the aim of the book yeah well, I think you certainly do end up caring about the people, Mac, and his sort of supporting players, and get very, very deeply involved in the ending, which is a very satisfying ending. Some very, very moving individual passages in the book, which is all narrated, I think we should say, by, um, by Mac, by McCall. We see 
everything the book through McCall's eyes. It's like an extended POV shot. POV is a point of view shot when the action is shot as if from one character's perspective. It's a dramatic device in movies and it's added a lot of drama to the test and it gives you a lot of involvement with what's going on in the test. It's very, very moving individual passages. I think very hard not to well up altogether at the letter which McCall receives from his dying mother. Oh, I'm almost quite choked up thinking about it. <laughs> quite choked I, up I, thinking about it now. I, I, well, um, I'm, very, I'm glad that worked. That, that took five or six drafts to arrive at something that I was happy with because it, it, it had to be moving. It had to be well enough written that it was moving, but it didn't want to be too well written because then it wouldn't feel like something that a mother would write to their son. So it was it was trying to get that balance between being emotive enough to touch someone, but also rough enough to feel real. But so I, I'm glad that I'm glad that you worked. Certainly, certainly hit it there. <laughs> Just once or twice, I thought McCall was as a narrator was a little too good to be true in the sense of having so much insight into what it takes to be a batsman or into um, into some of his family troubles. Yeah, that's true. And I think I intrude through Mac a, a few times in the book on some of the more sort of extended expositions of about cricket and, and, and obviously lots of those ideas are my ideas. But this is a point that other people have made that, it, you know, he feels too articulate, too bright to be a, a cricketer. But there are some very, very bright cricketers out there. You know, I mean, the two of the first people to read an early draft of the book were Mike Brearley and Ed Smith, both of whom are eminently capable of having that level of thought. In fact, <laughs> I should say Mac, the character James McCall, that the book is centred around, after both of them had read it, Ed said, you may have exhausted your stock of sons of public schoolmasters who played for Middlesex in England and went to Cambridge. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> and I, I realise I've I probably already <laughs> hit the whole target market in that sense. <laughs> I just to take away the subject from cricket very briefly, the conundrum which Richard and you have just been discussing, i.e., Max, super intelligence when he's actually his just a cricketer. It's the same problem with P.G. Woodhouse and Bertie Wooster. Bertie Wooster is meant to be uh, some blithering idiot, but of course he writes like an angel. And yes. he's capable of incredible <laughs> uh, phrases and, uh, and insights. And of course, he creates Jeeves. So it's the same paradox. It's quite, you're yes. quite good company there. No, exactly right. But I, at least I could send my guy to Cambridge and make him look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he keeps saying he's not very bright. He? Yeah. <laughs> Only in comparison to Beth. I think he's right. always oh, felt right. slight. He's a, he was younger at, at university. I think he's always slightly felt in her shadow intellectually. Yeah, there's sort of different kinds of intelligence in cricketers, aren't there? There's the mm. the old pro, you know, somebody like... I had a, once had a long chat with Ray Illingworth, the great, you know, never, never went near a university, you know, did national service and was captain of England, probably, I think, the best captain of England post-World War II, actually. And talking to him was a complete joy. There was no formal intelligence there. It was just, you're talking to an incredibly impressive and shrewd man. And then you have someone like Phil Edmonds, who's actually too intelligent for his own good. And then you get the genuinely thick cricketers, who are, of course, very often the easiest because they don't have to brood and think about what they're actually doing. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met a, a professional cricketer at the top of the game, as in, you know, someone who's had a, an international career, who hasn't got something about them 
mentally and and you know as like you say it's it's not always a formal intelligence i mean I've, i know cricketers who wouldn't be able to tell you who the prime minister is but you don't survive in that world without a being quite shrewd and b having a, a huge amount of mental toughness cricket is a at the top level is a game that tests very very hard and very heavy over a long period of time how tough you are mentally and so you know i think even like you say there is probably no no cricketer who who hasn't got something about them mentally they may have absolutely no academic intelligence but for the most part lots of them are very bright they're very sharp they're, they're very shrewd the story i often tell which always surprises everyone is that probably the guy with the broadest most powerful intelligence that i've come across is ben stokes um, so I, I would often set puzzles in, in rain delays to fill the time in the dressing room because we're not allowed phones or anything else. And so I had a bit of a captured audience. And Stokes, he would solve those puzzles very quickly and very easily. I set one uh, one puzzle in, in, in Adelaide during an Ashes test. And I used to teach further maths. I would, and I reckon a top further maths set, if I set that and gave them 40 minutes, there'd be a 50-50 chance that one of them in the set would get get an answer in that time. Stokes, he sold it in 10 minutes. Sold it faster than I did. (laughs) It's very, very interesting. You can see that in Stokes. Maybe I can ask you this. I know you can't give away confidences. We don't want you to. But we all fascinated and adore Stokes. He's one of the greatest cricketers of all time. And there was that moment when he... You used to regard him as a sort of Botham-esque slogger. And then suddenly, almost overnight, he started playing these long periods of matches, like in his great innings last year when he's, he's hardly scoring a run at all. He's just mm. going back to the old-fashioned blocking. And that came into his game, like, what, about two years ago? It was fascinating to know what the mental sort of process which led to that complete change in identity. Well, I mean, I, I, oddly enough, it didn't happen overnight. It happened in the, the period where he was suspended. So he, you know, he had that period after the incident in Bristol where he had six months out of the game, and then there was a court case that followed that. And I think he came back a different, a slightly different cricketer. I think you could you could separate his career into the pre and the post, and and see quite a different style of play, particularly in his batting uh, between those two. I wouldn't really want to go into any more detail than that. That is really, really interesting because he used that time to really think out the game and analyse it. And maybe actually players should do that more. Should I mean he really benefited? from that forced exclusion from the game to come back a different player. That is extraordinary. I haven't seen that. Because the whole timetable of a professional cricketer, as you bring out in your novel, is so rushed that you mm. often, that mainly you're not going to get the time to do that deep thought about your trade. Yeah, I mean, it makes this period that we're going through at the moment quite interesting, actually. I think every every interview that I've seen with one of the England boys, certainly, they've mentioned how much they're enjoying it how much they're enjoying uh, I'm sure it's not that's not a universal emotion but for the most of them this is you know the, the, their first chance to truly go home and spend time with with family and kids and over an extended period of time that, that they've ever had it's never you know the, the schedule has never allowed anything approaching what we've had over the last few weeks so I think I think they've they've all found it you know a, a, a quite a emotional and joyful experience um, yep. 
One of the, that's a very powerful theme that comes over in the book all the time is this sort of fragmented life that the cricketers have and the Mm. the time that they spend away from their families and the the contrast between family life and the life in the bubble of playing international cricket. McCall, who's 33, says at one point, I've seen 25 summers in a row, which Mm. is quite, you know, you don't even lead the same sort of year climatically as anybody else. No, that's right. And he says, another sentence I'd like to quote, The road becomes home. Home becomes a foreign town where you feel out of place and awkward. You watch your children grow up in time-lapse photography. Two really powerful themes I found in the book. One is the intensity of the bonds between players and sometimes the conflicts between them. And this feeling that the team is a a unit, particularly in adversity, against the Mm. whole outside world. The book, at any rate, expresses a special hatred against... administrators, (laughs) administrators, <laughs> media, and grandees at the MCC. Uh, <laughs> I think hatred is overstating it. So Jabba, who is the media manager, he definitely has, <laughs> shares all those hatreds. <laughs> James is, Mac is, is more ambivalent towards him. Um, yes. I, I mean, it, and it's interesting how that has changed in the 10 years that I've seen of England cricket. You know, in the first few years I was there, there was a deeply adversarial attitude towards the press and that I think partly through conscious effort on the part of of more recent coaches and captains and partly I think social media has changed the nature of that relationship quite a lot as well but it's no it's nowhere near as um, negative and adversarial as it used to be and I think that's very much for the better but it was more fun to write the novel in the in the the old style. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there have been so many evolutions in the relationship between the press and the journalists uh, mm. and the team. Um, I remember I took, uh, when I was writing my biography of Basil Dolivera, I took John Woodcock, who was uh, the Times cricket correspondent for many years, and I think the greatest writer of the English language, certainly in the newspapers since World War II. I, he's he's an utter hero of mine. And I was asking him about Basil's troubled tour of West Indies 67-8 when Dolivera got into quite a bit of you know a bit of boozing and Woodcock said he got a call from the news desk and uh, he asked to tell him about it or write about it and he just said he threw them away he put a flea in there yeah he said that's nothing to do with you at all that is not something I'd ever report (laughs) I don't think he, he just couldn't have done that these days could he no although I I think you still have correspondents and commentators who can be trusted with confidences and would probably take a similar line, you know, but, but they're rarer and, 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 the and also as a, as a practicing journalist, you know, your job as a journalist is to report news. So I'm not mm. completely sympathetic to the person who takes the confidences and doesn't pass them on. You are, there is a job you have to do as, as a reporter, even if you're a cricket reporter. And sometimes you have to write stories which really upset the people you're writing about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everyone's got a job to do. <laughs> I think that's one of the realizations that slowly dawns on most players at some point in their career. Is that, and it's but it's still hard not to take it personally. But one of the things Mac analyzes in the book is, of course, this evolution in the relationship between the players and the press. I.e., you're you're eighteen or twenty years old. You get your first chance in the team. You're suddenly you're meeting face to face as a colleague. Your heroes, and then mm. you see their weaknesses their cynicism, then they leave and quite a few of them go into the press box 
and uh, and then they start to turn on you. It's a very very nice piece of analysis which Mac gave and or you gave or and and so that uh, then it becomes a very edgy, difficult, and your senses of betrayal, and then of course the revenge almost being taken by the older man against the young hero. And mm. He resents the fact that the young up-and-coming thruster is now the centre of the stage uh, and he's just uh, still on this treadmill. It's quite, it's quite interesting, that really. I haven't, it made me think, your, your book, about all kinds of aspects of the game in that kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's... As, as a line of Graham Gooch's that I used, actually, um, I think I put it in Jabba's mouth, which is the ex-player turns up in the commentary box and after a while, you know, he's, he's still very much on the side of the players on the pitch and he's very positive towards them. And after a while, someone taps him on the shoulder and says, this is boring. You know, there's, there's only so many times you can say, oh, he'll be very disappointed with that. <laughs> yes. um, and they, they get pushed into being, you know, more difficult and more negative. And I think... For some reason, cricket seems to lend itself to to negativity. I think maybe it's just the length of time that you've got to talk or the, the, the sheer number of things that are happening quite slowly in front of you and therefore there's always something that you can pick on to disagree with. If you're commentating on a, on a football match, it's all a blur of motion. And I don't, know, I don't think the same opportunities necessarily sort of yeah, impose themselves on you. Have you ever come across... Um... Media cricket coverage in Pakistan of Pakistani players. <laughs> Peter and I can tell you the England players have it easy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I spent some time at the at the PSL. I'm, I'm the director of strategy of for the yes. Multan Sultans in my as well as my my ECB role. And so I was out there this year for the PSL. And yes, the the the, the level of scrutiny over there is is something to be seen. We had Lala uh, Shahid Afridi in our in our setup. And I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anyone in Britain who's as big as Shahid Afridi is in Pakistan. I don't, you know, no footballer, no film star, no member of the royal family. I mean, he's just on a different. He's literally the second biggest name in Pakistan after Imran Khan. We want to come back and ask more questions about your novel. Actually, we might divert briefly onto Multan. I, I very nearly went there to watch those games because um, last year I took a cricket team up the Indus Valley. Richard and I take cricket mm, teams around. Fantastic. Uh, we started in in, uh, in Hyderabad and we went up Sukur and eventually, and uh, we went to Mohenjo-Daro and eventually we, it was the most blissful and amazing journey. And eventually we ended up at Multan where we were, where she was wonderfully hosted by Ali Khan Tarin, who, who was incredibly mm. generous. We played his academy, which was fascinating. And then Zain Qureshi, local MP, as you probably met him, he raised a game against us in the uh, National Stadium. Obviously, it wasn't full of quite as full as it probably was when you were playing your PSL games, <laughs> and uh, we, we also we played a team of uh, lawyers at a smaller ground. I mean, we had we, we were so well received; it was a kind of real privilege. But when you you looked there, you had Andy Flower, my hero, mm. another great, wonderful man, I, who I first spoke to in two thousand and three in the World Cup. I was down there with Basil Oliveira. And I asked him about, i just come from Zimbabwe and he said, we got a surprise when we go up there because he was very brave and he wore the black armbands. Yes, of course. And so I've known him very little since then. And uh, of course, Muin Ali, who is playing for mm. you, uh, yeah. who is I, my cricketing hero. I, I just adore Muin. 
and of course Ali Kantarin, who was the promoter of the Multan Sultans. I was desperate to go. I couldn't for some reason. And I just love to hear what, what, the, what that experience was like because it was a big moment for Pakistan with international cricketers coming back now in quite, quite some numbers. Mm. Well, I mean, it was a fantastic experience. I'm very jealous, actually, of you that you got to, to see more of the country because I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time over there. But with the security precautions in place, we were, we were on a, a total lockdown. We weren't allowed out of the hotel. We weren't, you know, we saw... Did you get to the shrines? You must have gone to the shrines. No, we, we literally weren't allowed out of the hotel. Oh. We did have like a, a team lunch one day and it involved them closing a dual carriageway. The convoy, whenever we moved anywhere, the convoy was, you know hundreds of, of special forces troops, uh, ambulances, fire engines, the, the van that blocks the mobile signal. You know, so whenever we went to training, whenever we went to the ground, and that, you know, so we went out for lunch one day as a, as a team and, and they did all of this, as, you know, and we, we just thought it was too much of an imposition after that to, to, to go out of the hotel. But uh, sorry, anyway, uh, so I'm actually in th- my third month of lockdown. <laughs> As soon as I got back, they uh, they started the, the lockdown over here. <laughs> but it was a fantastic experience. Tell us how the uh, Sultans got it. I was following it from afar. They seemed to be doing really well and heading potentially to win, I think, when it was suddenly, when, of course, you got you got through the preliminary stages, didn't you? Tell us how you got on. Yeah, so we, we won eight of our first nine matches. So you, you play 10 matches in the in the group stage. Everyone plays everyone else twice. And there are six teams. So we, we won eight of the first nine. Then we put out a weakened side in the in the last group game because we'd already qualified as at top of the table. And then the, the the top four go through to the playoffs. And normally it's a it's a big advantage to finish first or second because you you sort of play a match and then go straight into the final. They they shortened the playoffs just down to semi final and final to try and fit it in before and brought it forward to try and fit it in sort of so that players could go home. And then there was a, a coronavirus scare the night before we were due to play the semi-finals, and so they pulled the plug, and we didn't play. So, how did, tell us how how did Muin Ali get on? Fantastically. I mean, you know, what, the two things that we did when we were recruiting the squad were we tried to put in, as well as you know, clearly looking for the best cricketers we could. We tried to put in as many relationships already built because a you know a T Twenty tournament is quite a short period of time; it's six weeks. So you don't really have time for coaches and, and et cetera to, to build relationships with each other and with the players. So we recruited a lot of the, the, the backroom staff from the, my early days with England. Uh, so we had Andrew Flower, Richard Halsell, Mushtaq Ahmed, uh, myself. And then we also used Azam Mahmood, who's Pakistan bowling coach. Uh, we had the Pakistan physio, the Pakistan masseuse, and the great Abdul Rahman. Um, who's one of my heroes? Fantastic coach. He was Andy's assistant. So, so we had we we tried to pre-install as many relationships between the the coaches and the players as we possibly could. And then the other thing that we looked for in our overseas players was people that we thought would thrive in you know in, in a, the first PSL tournament played back in 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 Pakistan. So three of our overseas spoke Urdu. We had Imran Tahir, Ravi Papara, and. Um, and Moeen Ali, and the other overseas players were sort of seasoned campaigners on the on the T20 circuit, because it's you know it's six weeks in in lockdown. It's six weeks you can't get out the the hotel. You're having to go to Pakistan, which a lot of players were, were fearful of uh, because of the security situation. So, so we were looking for playing talent on the field, and we were also looking for people that we thought would 
would gel with a, a mainly Pakistani squad in Pakistan. Uh, but Moin, you asked about, was a hero. He, I mean, he's just he's an absolute legend, uh, and he was fantastic. He, he took his family over there, uh, and they they spent the tournament over there. So um, I think he thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. What was his bowling like? Was it deadly uh, in the, in the twenty twenty situations as it is in Britain? Um, so he he bowled. He probably bowled. We bowled a lot of spin. Um, we, we you had twice. three leg spinners, didn't you? We had three leggers in the squad. We, we, um, we had Shahid Afridi and Imran Tahir, and uh, and that meant that that Moeen was generally played. In fact, I think all the games he played, he played as our sixth bowler, and so Moeen was used very specifically against either players with a weakness against spin or or left handers, um, and so and he did those that job very very well. He's played some. Good innings with the bat, and he had a, a decent return over the tournament. He never quite, he never quite set the place alight like we know he can, you know, that we like we've seen him do uh, in the past. Um, I think he was saving it for the final. Thinking about the um, conditions for PSL for players, visiting players particularly, ECB is talking about test matches in England in so-called biosecure environments, no spectators. Mm. Possibly no entourage for the players, or don't know about their access to family and friends. How do you think the England players are going to take to this? Yeah, I, th- I think you know, cricketers are they are pretty adaptable. I mean, I, th- I think if you've got a, a regular life where you go to work in the same place each day, and and you you have a sort of a regular pattern to your life, to the things that you do at the weekend, to the things that you do on Monday night and Wednesday night, and you know when the kids have got their various routines, and 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 I think if that's what you're used to. It's more unsettling when that changes. Professional cricketers don't have that. They every day is different to the, the previous day. I mean, there are lots of similarities. Obviously, it's quite a lot of cricket. Um, but you know that you, you're constantly moving around. You you live with a level of uncertainty, certainly in major tournaments. But you know, just in the the, the run of a normal summer, there's a, there's an awful lot of uncertainty for for any given player. So they tend to be adaptable and, and, and not easily phased and, and actually the you know we as I understand it we, we will be locked down as a group players management coaches for two weeks prior to any series and you, you just become your own you know I mean we spend more time with each other than we do with our families in, in the, the normal run of things so it'll just be the same except we'll be in a you know slightly unusual situation of being in a hotel in England rather than uh, in a hotel in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka. And what about the issue of playing in this in front of these vast empty stadiums? Is that going to phase players? It won't phase them. I mean, you know, the, the majority of the cricket they've ever played in their lives has, has been in front of empty stadiums. They won't enjoy it to the same degree. I mean, I think almost the one defining characteristic you need as an international cricketer is that you have to enjoy being in front of crowds. I think it's very hard to if you if that's not something you enjoy. So they 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 love it. They they love playing in front of big crowds. And actually, at the PSL, it, we went from you know playing in front of packed stadiums um, with incredibly passionate, noisy fans. Uh, and then the last two games we, we we played behind closed doors because of the the coronavirus. And it it does it it changes the atmosphere. It, it even looks funny on telly, to be honest. It, you don't get the. You're used to the hearing the, set, the the crowd reaction, and you don't get that. Um, but you know, we've played test series in Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai before in front of 17 people, and, you know, where you can you can hear the slips chatting from the from the boundary edge, um, and it, it feels like a 
it's it's got that funny sensation of sort of feeling like a club game, except you've got international players out there. But um, so it, it changes the atmosphere, and and it, the the players will probably under, enjoy it less as a result. But they'd rather do that than not play. Certainly, I think almost to a man. So, Nathan, I mean, is there a case? Because I would have thought there was, if you're a cricketer in these circumstances, actually to forget that you've ever played cricket and just completely get away from the game. So somehow you're fresh when you do come back. I think so. I mean, I don't know whether that's the approach that players are taking. I'm sure some are. But no, I think there's, there's a lot of sense in that. But, you know, most cricketers are also cricket fans. And so I suspect that their, their brains will, will wend their way back to cricket in one form or another. We're seeing a lot of videos, uh, Nathan, of uh, cricketers' um, fitness routines and the improvised games of cricket they're playing. I think the most entertaining we've seen is Kane Williamson giving slip catches in practice to his dog. I love yes. that, yeah. <laughs> I saw Stuart, Bo- uh, Stuart Broad bowling to his girlfriend in the back garden as well. <laughs> yes. how, how good is she? Is she, is she able to... Was she... He, he gave her a good write-up on Twitter. He said she was, she was improving quickly. <laughs> um, but certainly players are, are you know, keeping fit. They're ready for some kind of season to resume, aren't they? They are. So, I mean, you know, many are lucky enough to have home gyms and have been working on their programs. The others have all had, I think that I'm pretty sure they've had a delivery of basic exercise equipment, dumbbells and kettlebells, that sort of thing. And uh, and again, I've got their programs to work through. And we're lucky with cricket that, you know, it, it is a sport that you can practice on your own. You know, when we, when we start to hopefully prepare for the possibility of some international cricket, you know, it's not like rugby, which is very difficult to, to get back into training. You, you can practice as a batsman, practice as a bowler, whilst maintaining, you know, safe uh, social distancing, etc. Uh, so we're, we're lucky in that regard as a sport. So once you get the green light, which is up to the government, and yep. this week's announcement was rather unfriendly, it was just, I think, tennis and a couple of other games can start soon, but not uh, that was splashed in one of the papers. But uh, not cricket, it didn't, it wasn't there. Uh, but when, once you do get the green light, it's you can be up and running quite quickly, is what you're saying there, is it? It'll be a few weeks lead-in, particularly for the bowlers. Um, so when when the, the when we take the fast bowlers offline, there's quite a systematic, well-established method for bringing them back online and getting them up to the you know the, the bowling loads that they need safely without injuring them. You, you know, they're the one the one type of player who can't just walk out and start playing. Very different in the old days. They just told the fast bowlers to bowl, you know, it might be a thousand overs a season, have a layoff and bowl them all over again. Yeah, they? absolutely. <laughs> go, back, go back down the mine in the yeah, winter. Yeah. <laughs> Can I uh, move, go back to your wonderful novel? And one of the themes which comes out of it again and again is this, uh, I don't quite, I don't, how did the sit batsman make decisions? Mm. I mean, because you've got a ball at 90 miles an hour coming at you or more, you haven't got time consciously to say, I'm going to do this or that. Everything has got to be there already. It's, it even applies very much in our game, getting something at 65 miles an hour, you know, in our recreational level. Basically, you, you find yourself walking back to the pavilion. Why did I play that stupid shot? But the decision which you made, how was that reached? It's a really interesting point, And you go into it in great length 
Yeah, I mean, I I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of cricket, actually, that, that, you know, these decisions are made. They are made in some part of your brain and there is some conscious involvement because you can change the amount of um, attacking intent that you show, for example, while still reacting to the ball. Uh, so there's some involvement of the conscious brain, but there isn't time for the conscious brain to be fully involved, particularly at the speeds that we're talking about in, in terms of you know fast bowlers bowling in, in the international game. So you're having to rely on unconscious instincts and reflexes that you've trained through thousands of hours of, of repetition. But I, I always describe it as the... It's, it's one of the problems with coaching because the, the, the bit of the brain that you can talk to and that can talk back isn't fast enough to catch a ball. And the bit of the brain that's fast enough to catch a ball, you can't talk to. Hmm. Um, and so that that's why, you know, if, if you'd never driven a car and I sat you down and I told you absolutely everything that you needed to know in order to be able to drive a car, it wouldn't move you one inch closer to being able to drive a car. You'd still get in and not be able to make it go you can only learn skills through repetition and, and, and experience. Particularly at the speeds that we're talking about, the, 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 bit of, the bit of batting that makes our guys special happens before the bowler lets go of the ball, which I think is one of those things that people watching the game don't, don't really sort of fully understand. So if you take, you take a very good schoolboy player, I used to coach very good schoolboys. You put them on a bowling machine facing 80 mile an hour bowling. And in the next net, there's Joe Root or, a, you know, similar quality of test player. The test player looks better facing the bowling machine, but he doesn't look that much better. The schoolboy against the bowling machine at 80 miles an hour, if he's, if he's a, a genuine sort of top schoolboy player, you know, he, he's got very good coordination, he's got decent technique and you, you're surprised that there isn't more of a difference between the two. Then you take the bowling machines away and you put a test bowler in the nets and suddenly it's chalk and cheese. Now the schoolboy can't put a bat on ball and the test player is not making it look easy but he's able to cope. And that's because the, the first decisions that are made in terms of what movements you're going to make, whether you're going to go forward or back, which shot you're going to play, the batsman has already started making those decisions before the bowlers let go of the ball because of the shapes that his body's made. They, they can, um, there are these things called temporal occlusion studies where you basically you show, you show footage of a bowler and you stop it at various stages. So if, and if you stop it at ball release, elite, elite batsmen can still tell you something about the length of the ball and where it's going to go. So they've, they've already gained information about where the ball's going because someone's bowling at you 90 miles an hour you don't have time to ball track you don't have time to to watch the ball pick up the direction of its flight predict where it's going to land and then start to play your shot you can do it at club speed you can do it at 60 70 miles an hour you can't do it at 90 miles an hour your, your brain just doesn't work that fast yeah what well, that makes you realize one of the things which has really come into the game in the last 10 or 20 years is deception isn't it you know, the slower ball the you can see that there's much, much more of it. Always was a bit, but somehow the mm. in the in the kind of game you're coaching now, the elite level, those they have so many different balls which are deliberately deceptive. So presumably the whole idea there is to send false signals as you're coming into bowl and get the batsman playing the wrong, sh starting out to play the wrong shots. 
Yes. So, so this is a uh, the, the the I think the main reason for that rise in the the number of change up deliveries that that bowlers bowl and the number of different ones that they have in their repertoire is the increased prevalence of white ball cricket of, of shorter format cricket. So the the shorter the format, the more attacking the batsman has to be. The more attacking the batsman has to be, to be, the earlier he has to make a decision. So if you play an attacking shot, you have to make a, a much earlier decision about which shot you're going to play and how you're going to play it than if you play a defensive shot. And so the that's why slower balls. You'll see a lot of you know a lot of slower balls bowled in T20 cricket, and they tend to increase in prevalence as the game goes on. You know you, you get more at the death than you do in the in the opening overs, um, and likewise you get far more slower balls bowled in T20 cricket than you do in Test cricket, where they're they're pretty rare. They're, they're a sort of a surprise tactic, really. Um, I've got a slower ball, or an even slower ball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I call it an even slower ball. It's uh, it's. And, and is it, it deceptive? For a long time. It, it, it deceives a lot of people. First, the first whirl of the arm deceives a lot of people too. I don't. You know, it's, uh, my right shoulder is 144 years old compared to the. You know, it's twice as old as the left one. Yeah. Uh, and that's deceived a few people. But, uh, um, one. Sorry, just to be serious for a minute. One, I have played occasionally. Peter, I know, has too, with with test match players, test match bowlers. And even, the thing that's always struck me is even slow bowlers are quick by our standards. I've played a, yes. I've played a bit with Phil Edmonds in celebrity cricket. I faced a few deliveries from him. It He'd be opening the bowling. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think the two things that, that stand out to... Um, when you when you first see international cricket up, up close, you, you know you stand at the back of the nets or um, stand at the bowler's end. The two things that strike everyone are just how quick the quicks are. You know, it, 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 it it's if you stand side on to the to the batsman and watch the, the quicks bowl up close, it's mind boggling that the batsman can can react in time to it, to hit the ball. And then the other thing is is how much the ball moves in the air when the spinners bowl. How much, just how much dip and bend they get on the ball. The ball doesn't land anywhere near where it should when when a, a high class spinner is bowling. And and you know until you see that up close, it's it's hard to understand why why they're so effective against these batsmen who are so good. One of the points which you're making though is how heroic, which I still think think we realise it. Uh, you know the England batsmen who fa- or the international batsmen who face the West Indies attacks of the 80s you've got four guys five guys all bowling 90 plus all day long I mean you have to be heroic to, and, we, and you're not you haven't got a helmet no I, I just they did by the 80s I did they was it the 70s yes. so it's, I mean the no, 70s in the 70s the big 76 series they had four mm. really quick bowlers Michael Holding hit Brian Close uh, he didn't have a helmet Sadiq Mohammed, our friend Sadiq Mohammed of Pakistan was the first to use one regularly that was in 1978 Brian Clough, um, I remember I were much older than you, uh, Nathan. Uh, Brian, when Brian Clough was the greatest uh, football manager, well, he, he, the greatest football manager of all time, but it, in the 70s, when he was at his peak, he went to a Trent Bridge game and he said the courage of those English batsmen, David Steele, people like that, mm. unbelievable. He said there's nothing like it in football. No, I, I, it's extraordinary to watch now, isn't it? And and you know, you you look at the the footage of Lily and Thompson bowling in Perth as well. I mean, batsmen are getting hit by balls they didn't see. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that people walked out there with, you know, not only no helmet but you know 
pretty useless padding on the rest of them as well. It was extra, you know, extraordinary coverage, and, and very different techniques as a result. I mean, if you watch, if you watch the way that modern batsmen bat, you can only bat like that against quick bowling if you've got if you wear a helmet and and are, and are well protected. We also hope Nathan, there's going to be more to come from you. Is there a second novel in prospect? I've got the ideas for for a sequel. Um, I'm actually writing a, a non-fiction book at the moment, which attempts to delve into the, the details of, of why cricket works the way it does, um, focusing mainly on international cricket, and why you see patterns repeated in the way that they um, that you do, why why some things work and, and others don't, why why don't Indians bat left-handed, that sort of thing. That sounds an absolutely fascinating book. Love to have you back and to talk about that when it's published. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've had questions in cricket for for a hundred years now that we haven't been able to answer because we didn't have the data. And now, with with ball tracking and granular data, we can actually go and look at those problems and revisit them and and uh, and find out what why things happen. Um, and you know. Maybe end some arguments, maybe not. Maybe start some more. <laughs> well, very best. It's been a real joy to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Nathan. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can I just say very quickly, again for listeners, at dictation speed, Nathan Lehman, and the book is called The Test, um, and it is essential if you're going to get through lockdown at all. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's goodbye for me. Uh, and Richard Hallow is going to say goodbye with a bit of a, an aperitif or a guidance to what we're going to be talking about next week. Next week, uh, we're going to be analysing the reports we're hearing at all quarters of the threats to club and recreational cricket from the lockdown of the season and the indefinite suspension of this form of cricket. Join us then. Thank you very much to... All our um, contributors, especially Nathan today, but also all our contributors have been writing in with suggestions and proposals. Do please keep the contributions coming uh, to Harry Harry B four eight four eight. That's all one word. Harry is in the name Harry B four eight four eight at yahoo.co.uk. We will we'll have a little bit more of the we'll have the next member of the Philosophers Eleven to introduce to you. Um, Aristotle, very much a bits and pieces player. Until then, it's goodbye. And goodbye from me in Wiltshire. Oh, sorry about that. Somebody was ringing me up. Sorry, music. I switched on the I thought, I thought, I thought you just. I thought, <laughs> Sorry I thought about you, that. I, I switched on the phone. I thought that was the. I thought that you decided to scrap my music. I thought you decided to scrap my music. Yes.